Hi there, welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host, Jin Kim, and today we're going to talk about electrolytes, like the kind in energy drinks, such as Power Thirst, which has electrolytes, turbo lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. If you get that reference, you've lived through the golden era of YouTube. <sighs> those days. Anyway, today we'll be talking about what electrolytes even are, why you need them in your body, and what can go wrong when you don't have enough or have too many of them. Let's get started. What are electrolytes, and why do sport drinks companies so badly want you to know that their products contain them? Well, as we know from the documentary Idiocracy, we know that sports drinks like Brando's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. Okay, old movie-based memes aside, what are electrolytes? Do we even know? Defining electrolytes is actually quite simple. It's basically salt and water. More specifically, it's ions in a solution which means the electrolytes let the water conduct electricity. But we're not actually that interested in the chemical definition of electrolytes, but what role they play in our body. So without further ado, let's talk about what electrolytes do in the body, as if you're a child. You are a miracle. That's what we're told by our parents. Human beings are fascinating things, as far as we know, we're the only parts of the universe that can think about and study the universe itself. But if we take a real hard look at ourselves, turns out we're just meaty tubes. Food goes in our mouth, comes out our butt. And that tube is surrounded by very complex meat. And that meat is basically a bag of salty water. So yep, you're basically a poop tube wrapped in a bag of salty water. Then again, for a bag of salty water, you can do some amazing stuff, like think and feel, and hope, and dream. Well, it turns out, the salt in our body is crucial in letting us do all of those things. Your body is about two-thirds water, and that water has lots of salts dissolved inside. If you don't believe me, taste your tears the next time you have a big cry. It'll be salty, just the way you feel. Most of the salt is what table salt is made of, but you also have lots of other kinds of metal salts, too. This salt does a lot of stuff in the body. First of all, it helps your body move water around in various ways, because water likes to move to salty areas, so that it's not as salty. It's a real thirst quencher. So, your body tightly controls where the salt is, whether it's inside the cells that act as the building blocks of your body, your blood, or the other juices that seep through the body. If the water outside of the cell is too salty, it'll draw all the water out and shrink them, like anchovies. But if the water outside has no salt, then the water will rush into the cell and make it explode like an overfilled water balloon. This is why when you eat a lot of salt, like a bag of potato chips, you feel really thirsty. Because your brain wants to drink some water to water down all the salt and keep your body from getting too dehydrated. You also need salt in your body because it's how your body's electrical wires work. That's right, your brain and nerves and muscles all rely on electricity, just like a computer or a robot. But instead of copper wires and silicon chips, your body uses neurons, special electric cells to send messages all throughout the body. It does this by having some really clever ways to change the salt level inside and outside the neuron, which lets electricity run from one direction to the other. This is how your heart beats, how your brain tells your muscles to move, how you feel pain, and how you think and be you. So yep, it all comes down to salt, 
and having just the right amount of it. Welcome back. So as we said before, electrolytes are basically salts dissolved in some kind of solution, most commonly water. Technically it's not the salt that is the electrolyte, it's the ions that make up the salt. Ions are electrically charged particles. To go over some chemistry 101, all matter are made of atoms. An atom has a core nucleus, which is positive protons and neutral neutrons. Surrounding the atoms are cloudy shells of negative electrons zipping around. In an element, like the stuff on the periodic table of elements, the positive and negative charges are balanced because there are an identical number of protons and electrons per atom. But often, an atom will have either too little or too many electrons, which upsets the balance. For example, sodium will often have one electron too few compared to the number of protons. This means that the sodium ion will have one extra positive charge. So we note that ion as Na+, where Na is the chemical symbol for sodium, and plus denotes that one positive charge. Similarly, chlorine will often have one electron too many, so it has an extra negative charge. This makes the chloride ion Cl- when you note it down. Remember how in electricity and magnetism, opposites attract? Well, the positive sodium ion and negative chloride ion want to be stable again. So they find each other and go, hey, I've got an extra electron and you need an electron. Want a bond? And they balance each other out as a salt. This bonds them together, making NaCl, or sodium chloride, which is table salt. When you dissolve table salt in water, the ionic bonds break apart and the ions go back to being lonely and electrically charged, like freshly single ions in a sea of dating apps. These ions are what we call electrolytes. That's what plants crave. Sorry, it keeps popping up in my head every time I say electrolytes now. Power of marketing, I suppose. Your body is mostly made up of water, but not pure water. It is lots of ions and salts dissolve in it. We'll talk about them in detail later in the episode, but the most important electrolytes are sodium, potassium, chloride, magnesium, calcium, phosphate, and bicarbonate. There are other things like proteins that also carry some negative charge. So what do these electrolytes actually do in the body? Why do we need to balance their concentrations and how does the body do this? Do sports drinks do anything other than turn your tongue blue? And how do neurons use electrolytes to transmit electricity? We have lots to talk about, so let's talk about the most important aspect of electrolytes, tonicity. Believe it or not, tonicity has nothing to do with how many gin and tonics you've drunk. And I should know, I've had unimaginative people calling me gin and tonic since I was a kid. Our cells are basically teeny tiny water balloons. It's packaged neatly in a bubble of cell membrane, which is a very, very thin layer that keeps all of the important things in, all of the outside out, and tightly controls what goes in and out of the cell. The cell membrane is watertight and barely lets anything through, but it does have little doors called channels and gates. These can be opened and closed to control movement of substances, kind of like border control at the airport. One type of channel is the water channel that's kind of just left open so water can freely move in and out. But Jin, you might ask, what if the cell lets out too much water and deflates like a sad balloon animal? Or what if too much water rushes in and pops the cell? Well, lucky for us, nature has already solved that problem with the clever use of, that's right, electrolytes. Water has a very useful quality called osmosis, where it always wants to move from a dilute place to a concentrated place. This means if you had pure distilled water on one side of a box, 
and salty seawater on the other side of the box, separated by a wall that only lets water through, then the water will move towards the seawater because it's more concentrated with salt. We call this special kind of wall a semi-permeable membrane, which sounds fancy, but essentially means that only water can go through it. Which is how your cell membrane works too, thanks to these channel proteins. So this means that as long as the cell can control how salty it is inside and outside of itself, it can control the movement of water. If the outside of the cell is not as salty as the cell, water will come into the cell and make it swell. Like when you leave food in a sink full of water and it gets all swollen and gross looking. But if the outside of the cell is saltier than the cell, then water will be sucked out of the cell to follow that salt, shriveling it. Like when you put salt on a slug and it withers away, but please please don't do that, it's really cruel. But if the outside of the cell is exactly the same saltiness as the cell, what would happen? Well, remember that nature likes equilibrium. That's why osmosis happens in the first place. Since there's no difference or gradient, water won't move and the cell will stay exactly the same size if the salt levels are the same outside and inside. Which, if you think about it, is what the cell would want most of the time. You wouldn't want your house getting bigger and smaller willy-nilly, would you? you get no work done. So, unlike single-celled organisms like bacteria, the human body is designed to keep the cells bathed in a fluid that's the same saltiness as the cells themselves. We call this the extracellular fluid, because it's outside the cell. The fluid inside of the cell is the intracellular fluid, because it's inside. Just think entrance for in, exit for out. Since you probably get the whole salt and water thing by now, let's kick it up a notch and teach you some more Greek. Remember that hyper means more or too much, like when you're hyped up. Hypo is the opposite, meaning too little, like hypothermia when you don't have enough heat. So a fluid that is saltier than a cell is called hypertonic fluid, because its tonicity or salt concentration is higher than a cell's. If the fluid has less salt concentration than a cell, it's called hypotonic. Easy, right? Now, where else have we heard something-something tonic before? Oh yeah, all of these sports drinks claiming to be isotonic? Iso means equal, so an isotonic fluid has the same salt concentration as a cell, meaning it won't affect the water inside the cell. Extracellular fluid is truly isotonic, as well as most fluids that we put into the human body in medicine, such as intravenous fluids, medications such as eye drops, and so forth. This is why they all taste salty. You can imagine why we do this too. If you've ever swam in the ocean with an open cut, it stings like hell. That's why we even have a saying, rubbing salt in the wound. It draws out all of the moisture from the cells, making them contract and making the wound shift. And if we poured in a big volume of hypotonic fluids into the bloodstream, that would dilute the electrolytes already in the blood, and also cause your cells to swell up, which is usually a bad thing. Sports drinks are rarely truly isotonic, but we'll get to this later in the episode. Alright, before we move on from tonicity, we have to talk about how the body maintains an isotonic environment. There's two parts to this, what the body does, and what the cell does. In regards to how the body controls tonicity, you can go back and listen to episode 34, where we talk about how the kidney works. The kidney is the main filter of the body, where it decides how much salt and water it should pee out. If your body is too salty, it needs to conserve water and pee out more salt. If your body is not salty enough, it needs to hold on to salt but pee out more water. It can also tell your brain to drink more water if you're too salty. Thanks to some really complex physiology, 
the kidneys keep you just the right level of saltiness, like a well-cooked dish. Well, then what about your cells? How do they keep the intracellular fluid a consistent saltiness? Remember how the cell membrane tightly controls what goes in and out of the cell using channels and gates? One of the most important gates is called the sodium-potassium ATPase, or sodium-potassium pump. It's a wonderfully designed little protein that acts like an automatic door that only works if the right number of ions are moving the right direction. The gist is that the pump kind of looks like the letter V, with the open mouth facing inside the cell membrane. It really likes sodium ions when it's resting, so it fishes out three sodium ions from inside of the cell membrane and holds onto them. Then it needs a ticket to activate itself. This ticket is called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, the most important chemical in the cell because it's like the main currency to do any kind of action that involves energy. When ATP comes in and activates the pump, it suddenly changes shape, closing the open mouth and opening up the other side instead. This pushes the sodium ions outside of the cell membrane, and the pump lets go, releasing them to fly-fly. The new shape of the pump favours potassium ions, so now it waits until it catches two potassium ions. When the two ions bind to the pump, the pump just snaps shut like a Venus flytrap. This brings it back to its resting state, with the open mouth facing inside the cell again. The potassium is released, and voila! The pump has successfully moved three sodium ions out and two potassium ions in. This means that overall, the cell has become slightly less salty or tonic. It also makes the cell slightly more negative because both sodium and potassium ions are positively charged. Three out and two in equals a deficit of one positive charge. This will be relevant soon, so remember that. The way the pump works is so elegant that it's worth watching a video explaining how the shape changes. I'll include a short clip in the show notes so you can check it out after this episode. Cells have a lot of these sodium-potassium pumps all around their cell membrane, tirelessly working to pump sodium out and potassium in. In fact, there are so many that the pumps alone consume at least 30% of the cell's ATP yield. In some cells that we'll talk about in the next section, they can use up to 3 quarters of the ATP produced. That's like if you use 75% of your electricity bill just pumping salt out of your house. Now, the sodium-potassium pumps aren't the only things regulating salt levels. The cell also has various other types of channels that can transport sodium or potassium ions. These channels might be opened using a chemical switch, physical pressure, or electricity. So the cell can adjust its tonicity depending on what signals it receives. So you can see that cells, and by extension you, aren't just bags of salt water. It's actually a bit more complex than that. Let's do a quick recap of tonicity before we take a quick break and move on to the next section. Tonicity refers to the salt concentration of a cell, which is packaged in a special layer that only lets water in and out, but can also selectively move salts and other things when it wants to. Water wants to move to an area that has a higher tonicity thanks to osmosis. So if you bathe a cell in a hypertonic solution with too much salt, it will suck water out of the cell. But if you bathe it in a hypotonic solution, it will absorb water and swell. Cells use osmosis to adjust how much water moves in and out of itself by adjusting its own salt concentration. The body also helps by keeping the outside of the cell, the extracellular fluid, a constant tonicity. Cells adjust their tonicity by controlling the two main electrolytes that make up its tonicity, sodium and potassium. It uses a special pump that pumps three sodium ions out and pumps two potassium ions in making the cell less tonic and more negatively charged. 
Overall, the tonicity of the cell and the extracellular fluid are all tightly controlled to maintain an equilibrium, because nature loves equilibriums. Alright, that was a lot to take in, so let's take a short break. When we're back, we'll be learning about how the body uses electrolytes to move electricity, like we're Pikachu or something. Welcome back. So, turns out electrolytes are very important, because they prevent our cells from drying out or popping, and pretty much lets them waterbend. But there's an even cooler thing that cells can do with electrolytes. As the name suggests, electrolytes let cells manipulate electricity. Which is pretty cool considering we've only known about electricity for like 200 odd years, yet our bodies have been utilizing it for millions of years. The specialized cells in our body that deal with electrical signals are called neurons. You find heaps of them in your brain, like a quadrillion of them. But you also see them in the spinal cord and wherever nerves are found, like the heart, gut, and muscles. Neurons typically look like a spiky ball with a really long tail called the axon. The axon is essentially a biological wire that can transmit electrical signals from one end to the opposite end, where it can activate a neighboring neuron using neurotransmitters. We won't talk too much about neurotransmitters because we covered them in episode 40 when we talked about electroconvulsive therapy. Go have a listen after this. So, how do neurons use electrolytes to transmit electricity down the axon? Remember when we talked about the sodium-potassium pump? We discussed that the pump results in the cell becoming more negative because more positive ions are being pumped out than in. Turns out this is crucial to how neurons work. So, let's imagine the axon of a neuron as a tube. The inside of the tube is negatively charged, while the outside is positively charged, thanks to the pump. This means that because there's a difference in charge across the cell membrane, or an electrochemical gradient to be technical, the cell membrane has a potential to be electric. You can think of potential like the tension you feel when two romance movie characters are really into each other, but are too shy to do anything about it, so they just keep stealing glances and fidgeting. Real potential for sparks to fly, but nothing has happened yet. Only attraction. We can actually measure this potential. Turns out it's around minus 70 millivolts. Or in other words, the inside of the cell is 70 millivolts less charged than the outside. We call this the resting potential, because it's what the cell membrane is like at rest. Well, what if it's not resting? What if we want the neuron to work and transmit a signal? To do this, we need to turn a resting potential into an action potential. For example, neurons might get turned on when they feel pressure, like when you touch something, or when it senses a certain chemical, such as smelling a fart. Or most commonly, it can get activated with electricity, such as another neuron tapping it on the shoulder going, hey, you're next. Or if you literally shock it with electricity, like the frog leg experiment by Luigi Galvani. All of these stimuli do one specific thing, they open new channels in the neuron cell membrane. Remember how we talked about there being channels other than the sodium-potassium pump and water channels? These are the ones we talked about. Understanding action potential can be a little tricky, so we're going to take it one step at a time. Step 1. A stimulus, such as touch pressure, causes some sodium channels to squeeze open, letting sodium move across the membrane. Because there's more sodium ions outside the cell, they move into the cell to even things out called diffusion. Like when a drop of ink slowly spreads out in a glass of water to make it entirely blue. Step 2. As more sodium ions trickle into the cell, the membrane potential gets smaller because there's less electrical difference. The channel is basically undoing the hard work the sodium-potassium pump has been doing. 
So the membrane potential gets less and less, from negative 70 to negative 65 to negative 60, and so on. Step 3. When the potential drops low enough, specifically a threshold of minus 55 millivolts, a ton of voltage-gated sodium channels all open up. These channels can sense that the membrane potential has decreased, and only open when it's less than minus 55 millivolts. Now that there is a lot of sodium channels open, sodium ions just flood into the cell, making it more and more positive inside. The threshold is important because it's like an all-or-nothing switch. If the stimulus isn't strong enough to cause enough sodium ions to enter, the membrane potential won't cross the threshold, and you won't get this massive influx of sodium ions. It'll just be a false alarm. Step 4. So many sodium ions flood in that the inside of the cell becomes more positive than the outside. Because the potassium ions can't flood out thanks to the semi-permeable membrane. The membrane potential climbs rapidly until it hits about plus 40 millivolts. This is what we call depolarization. The neuron is now properly activated. Step 5. Depolarization is so strong that it causes other voltage-gated sodium channels nearby to open as well, which triggers more depolarization in those areas. This chain reaction lets the action potential spread down the axon as more and more channels open up, like a Mexican wave spreading through the stadium. But why doesn't it go backwards as well? It's because of a cool thing called a refractory period. Basically, the part of the axon that just got depolarized can't depolarize again for a short while, until everything is fully chilled out. This is exactly to direct the signal in one direction and prevent it from going backwards. Step 6. What goes up? must come down. When the depolarization goes on long enough, the now positive membrane potential activates a different kind of channel, potassium channels. Because there's more potassium inside the cell compared to outside, the potassium ions start rushing out, taking positive charge with them. This helps balance out the excess positive charge that the sodium ions brought with them. Eventually, the membrane potential becomes more and more negative as it repolarizes. In fact, the membrane becomes hyperpolarized at first because it overshoots and goes below negative 70 millivolts, until the action of the sodium-potassium pump brings the balance back to the resting potential, negative 70 millivolts. Once the refractory period is over, the axon can transmit another signal, and so it goes. Isn't that cool? Just by manipulating two kinds of electrolytes, neurons can transmit and control electrical signals. This lets you do all kinds of things. Your heart beats regularly thanks to the regular electrical signals that come from its pacemaker. It's how your brain receives information from your senses, and gives command to your muscles to move. It's how your guts and other organs know when to do more or less of their activity. It's even how your brain works, because there's trillions and trillions of neurons all connected with each other, sending electrical signals in specific patterns to generate all kinds of reflexes and thoughts and feelings. So, in a way, you, as in your personality and who you are, all come down to the movement of electrolytes. Electrolytes. Turns out it's what you crave. Okay, so by now we've highlighted that electrolytes are pretty dang important. Specifically, how sodium and potassium can do all sorts of magic things with water and electricity. What about the other electrolytes? You've much less of these compared to sodium and potassium, but they all play an important role in the body. You have chloride, the other part of sodium chloride, or table salt, that acts as a main negatively charged ion, to balance out the positively charged sodium and potassium. Side note, we call negative ions anions, and positive ions cations. Calcium and magnesium both play an important role in how muscles function. 
which is why magnesium deficiency can cause muscle twitches and cramps. Magnesium also helps your heart electricity run regularly as well. Bicarbonate helps buffer the blood acidity level to prevent it from being too acidic or alkaline. So now, let's take the two most important electrolytes, sodium and potassium, and learn what happens when your body can't control the right balance. What happens if you have too much or too little of either electrolyte? Believe it or not, it's quite rare to have excess sodium in your blood, known as hypernatremia. Your kidneys are quite good at peeing it out, so you don't get hypernatremic just because you had a really salty meal. That said, if you have way too much salt, like more than what a normal human being should consume, it can cause problems. For example, children sometimes get hypernatremia because they drink a ton of soy sauce or seawater, out of curiosity or on a TikTok there. In fact, the more common cause of high sodium level is not enough water. That's right, electrolytes and water have an intricate balance thanks to our kidneys, but if you don't have enough water to dilute the same amount of salt, your blood is going to be saltier. Think of cooking. If you want to make a stew more seasoned, you can simmer it for longer to boil some water off, so that the flavours are more concentrated. The same goes for your body. If you have insufficient water because severe dehydration, say from epic diarrhoea, or a hormone condition called diabetes insipidus that causes you to pee all of your water out, then your blood sodium level will rise. The amount of sodium hasn't changed, but it's just in less water now, so it's more concentrated. This makes your blood hypertonic, sucking water out of your cells. The organ that's most susceptible to this is your brain. As your brain cells or neurons shrink, it causes various issues like restlessness, irritability, and nausea. You also get super thirsty for obvious reasons. Then you start getting tremors and can't balance yourself so you walk like a drunk person. As the sodium level rises to crazy high levels, your muscles start twitching until you get seizures, comas, strokes, and eventually, death. What about the opposite problem of hyponatremia, as in not enough sodium in the blood? There are lots of things that can cause hyponatremia, so much so that it's a common teaching and exam topic for doctors. But it almost always boils down to the same issue. It's a water problem, not a sodium problem. Hyponatremia is rarely because your body doesn't have enough sodium, but it's diluted down by too much excess water. For example, people who drink tons of water, like certain hydro homies who drink more than 10 liters of water a day, can lower their sodium to dangerous levels. You didn't think water could be toxic, did you? You can also get low sodium because your brain gets confused and makes too much hormone that causes your kidneys to retain water, often due to illness or certain medications or a brain injury. Some people do have issues with their kidneys that can cause them to pee out too much sodium. One way or another, if your sodium drops, so does your blood tonicity. This makes your brain cells swell instead of shrink. Oddly, the symptoms are surprisingly similar to hypernatremia. Nausea and vomiting, lethargy, confusion, muscle weakness, Eventually, you can get seizures, and because your brain is too swollen, it can herniate and cause a coma, or death. Yep, a lot of medical things end in death. Because both hypernatremia and hyponatremia are often caused by an imbalance of water, the treatment is often also giving water back to the patient, or restricting water intake until the body can sort out the balance again by itself. But because a change in the tonicity causes the brain cells to change size, if you rapidly change the sodium level, it can cause problems in itself, such as neurons becoming stripped of their protective sheath, causing brain injury. So you can see why it's important that our body regulates electrolytes and water. Just as much as it sustains your life, electrolytes, or lack thereof, 
can kill you. What about potassium? Well, turns out this is even worse than sodium. Because most of your potassium lives inside our cells, the blood potassium level is much less than sodium. Your normal sodium value is about 140, whereas your normal potassium value is about 4. So a big difference. But this also means that your body is very sensitive to changes in your blood potassium level. Potassium is intimately involved in the heart's electrical circuit. Too much or too little potassium can upset the balance and cause a fatal arrhythmia, or irregular heartbeats. Fortunately, potassium is less affected by your water balance compared to sodium. Your kidneys are quite good at keeping it balanced in a very tight range. But if too much potassium enters the body, or your kidneys can't excrete the potassium, we can run into issues. Many people suffer from chronic kidney disease due to all sorts of things like diabetes, high blood pressure, and autoimmune diseases. If your kidneys are too weak to function properly, it can fail to pee out enough potassium, meaning the potassium level builds and builds. As your potassium level rises, your heart rhythm starts to insidiously change, increasing your risk of developing a dangerous heart rhythm such as ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, a type of cardiac arrest. In fact, high potassium is so dangerous that it's the main form of execution in some countries nowadays. They inject a lethal dose of potassium chloride, causing the inmate to go into a cardiac arrest and stop their heart. In rare cases, people can get hyperkalemia, too much potassium, from eating way too much dried apricots and licorice roots that either dump a lot of potassium into the bloodstream or alter your kidney hormones to stop them from excreting the potassium. But then, the opposite problem, hypokalemia, can also cause problems too. This often happens when people have excessive diarrhea, because the potassium gets pooped out before it's even absorbed. It can also happen with some medications and hormone conditions, such as Cushing's disease. Low potassium can cause issues with muscles, cramps and spasms, but also weakness and paralysis. There's a weird condition called hypokalemic periodic paralysis, where some healthy-looking young people can suddenly drop their potassium level and not be able to move their arms or legs. But more dangerously, severely low potassium can also cause arrhythmias, which can end in, you guessed it, death. This is why doctors and nurses study all the different ways your electrolytes can be deranged, because many of them are common, lethal problems that we need to look out for and know how to treat. And it's also why electrolytes are so important, because it's what plants crave. Sorry, sorry, last time, I promise. But on the topic of Brondo, let's finish the episode by talking about sports drinks. You'll often see sports drinks with energetic names like Berry Ice, Mountain Blast, Chocolate, and Raw Berry, claiming that you should drink it after sports because it has electrolytes. Which is the whole reason you'll listen to this episode, so you can finally understand what the heck electrolytes are and why you need them. But turns out, as we've learned from this episode, your body is pretty damn good at balancing your own electrolytes, as long as you're not sick or stupid enough to drink soy sauce or eat 400 kilograms of apricots. Sports drinks often claim that electrolytes are helpful in replenishing lost electrolytes, because obviously your sweat has salt, which is sodium chloride. That makes sense, right? If I'm losing sodium, I should get more in my drink so I don't get a coma. Well, the thing is, unless you're sweating so much that you're severely dehydrated, it's unusual that you would suffer any significant change in your blood sodium level, because a young healthy body can adjust how much water it holds on or pees to prevent the sodium level from going out of whack. So instead of sports drinks which are full of sugar or caffeine or both, you're better off drinking straight up water, because you're losing a lot more water than salt in your sweat and from panting. 
Sports drinks also claim that they are isotonic, so you don't have to worry about your blood becoming too hypotonic or hypertonic. But turns out, most sports drinks are a little bit hypertonic, because food safety regulation rules state that you can have a leeway of a certain amount. A normal osmolality, roughly how much salt is in the solution, is 280. But sports drinks are usually about 300 in osmolality, because technically, you can get away with calling that isotonic in the food and drinks industry. Kind of how Tic Tacs claim to be sugar-free, even though they're pretty much mostly sugar. Because technically, they have less than one gram of sugar per tablet, since each Tic Tac is only half a gram in weight. Seems stupid, but that's how the world works. Oddly enough, there are some situations where you do want electrolytes in your fluids. And that's when you're properly dehydrated, usually because you have gastroenteritis, food poisoning, or some other kind of tummy bug. In these situations, you're losing fluids so quickly that the normal absorption rate of water can be a bit too slow, and you end up in a deficit. But luckily for us, our intestines have a system built in, where it can absorb water faster if it has some salt and some sugar in it. This is because there are channels in the gut membrane where it opens in the presence of sodium or glucose to let more water in. So, sometimes doctors will prescribe fluids with just the right amount of electrolytes, such as enolite or pediolite or some other kind of ORT. That's oral rehydration therapy for patients that need extra hydration. This is particularly important for children because they can get dehydrated really quickly and become really unwell. But because kids sometimes don't like this slightly salty electrolyte solution, researchers have also studied an alternative solution, apple juice. Turns out if you dilute apple juice so that it's one part apple juice, five parts water, it does a decent job as a rehydration fluid without overloading the kid in sugar. This is way more effective, both clinically and in terms of cost, than sports drinks, which often have way too much sugar and can make you feel more dehydrated at times. An even more basic form of this has been deployed in countries where diarrheal illnesses such as cholera run rampant. If you take a liter of clean water, six teaspoons of sugar and half a teaspoon of salt, it will have just the right amount of glucose and sodium to help children absorb the water much more efficiently and rapidly. There you go! Electrolytes saving the day once again! So what did we learn today? We learned that electrolytes aren't just what plants crave, but electrically charged ions dissolved in a solution, like sodium, potassium, and chloride. We learned that our cells are mostly made of water, with some amount of electrolytes in them, making them salty. We learned how osmosis works, and how cells can shrink or swell depending on how salty its environment is, due to water movement. We learned about how the cell pumps and shifts electrolytes in and out of itself, to adjust the tonicity. We learned that nerve cells can use electrolytes to conduct electrical signals, which is how our nervous system functions. We learned what can happen when the balance is destroyed, and the electrolyte levels are too high or too low. We learned that sports drinks suck, but slightly salty sweet water or diluted apple juice can actually save lives. Lastly, we learned that we are all just bags of salty water, but by god can we do some amazing things. Alright, for today's 2 Minute Explain, let's talk about another important mineral in our body. Vital minerals, in fact. That's right, that's where the word vitamin comes from. Vitamins are a group of molecules that living things need in teeny tiny amounts to sustain life. They might be needed to carry out certain chemical reactions, or they might be a key ingredient in another molecule the body needs to make to keep living. We have to get vitamins from food, because our body can't make them on its own. If you don't get enough of these vitamins in your regular diet, it can cause serious issues, many of which end in our good old friend, death. 
Now, you probably know about vitamin C, but you've probably also heard of some other random letters as well, right? Surely they're all related and can't be too different? Well, you'd be wrong. There are technically 18 different vitamins, and all of them are quite different from each other, with some exceptions. Some scientists just decided to group them together and assigned letters in alphabetical order, except one. So let's do a lightning round of each vitamin and what it does. First, you have vitamin A. We need vitamin A to C because the body uses it to make a compound called retinol. It's also involved in sunscreen and acne treatment. If you don't have enough vitamin A, you suffer night blindness. Side note, if you eat a polar bear's liver, you die of vitamin A poisoning because they get away too much of it from fish. Then we have vitamin B. Oh, wait, w what's that? There are vitamins B 1 to 12. It turns out they're not even that related to each other. Oh, and four of them aren't even called vitamins anymore, because scientists later discovered that they did other things in the body. B1, or thiamine, is super important in breaking down glucose. If you don't get enough of it because of a restricted diet or because you're alcoholic, it can cause serious illnesses such as beriberi, Wernicke's encephalopathy, or the infamous Korsakoff syndrome, a brain disorder that makes you lose memory of the past and your ability to make new memories. So you're perpetually trapped in a moment, while your brain makes stuff up to fill the gaps. Have a read of the man who mistook his wife for a hat to find out more. A lack of B2 can cause chapped lips. Lack of B3 can cause diarrhea and dementia. B4 doesn't exist. B5 and B6 deficiency cause nerve damage. B7 deficiency causes dermatitis. B8, 10 and 11 also don't exist. B9 or folate is super important for unborn babies because it prevents spina bifida and lack of B12 can cause anemia. <sighs> and side note, B12 is also used to treat cyanide poisoning. Boom, how weird is that? Vitamin C is the one everyone knows about, because if you don't eat enough lemons like a sailor, you'll get scurvy, arr, and then you'll bleed from your gums, your old scars will open up, and then you die. Oranges are even better than lemons at staving off scurvy, whereas limes have less than half the vitamin C of lemons. Plus, lime juice degrades when stored in a barrel or cooked, which is why the British Navy continued to suffer scurvy even after stocking up on lime juice. Moving on, vitamin D has five subtypes, but they're all involved in the same pathway, so they kind of count as one. Vitamin D is super important in bone development and formation, and a deficiency in it can cause rickets and osteomalacia, which weakens bones. So make sure you get enough sun, but not so much that you get skin cancer. And don't be a radiologist, because apparently they legitimately get vitamin D deficiency due to being in dark rooms for so long. I thought it was a joke until my radiologist friend told me that he had vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin E isn't very important, deficiency is super rare, so we're going to ignore them. Now, the last one is vitamin F. I mean, K. Because instead of going A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the bastard who named vitamin K decided to name it for coagulation. But not C, because he was German and they spell coagulation with a K. Ugh. And to be fair, they used to have vitamins F, G, H, all the way to vitamin U, but now they're all named other things because they've been reclassified. At least vitamin K says in the name what it does. It's crucial in blood clotting. It's why we give it to patients who have had too much or are bleeding while on a blood thinner medication called warfarin. Lastly, turns out if you're a regular healthy individual with a normal diet, you really don't need to take any kind of vitamin supplements. There's no evidence that multivitamins are helpful to healthy individuals, unless you have specific deficiencies such as radiologists and sailors and kidney failure patients, and some other medical conditions that need treatment, 
or an alcoholic. There are no conclusive reliable scientific evidence that shows vitamin C doing any beneficial effect when it comes to colds and cancers. So taking vitamin C supplements is also a waste of money, unless you're a 17th century pirate. You pee most of that out anyway. And it's about all you need to know about vitamins. A lot longer than two minutes, but now you know what they do and why you don't need to shell out money to buy various bottles of pills that won't really do anything. As long as you're eating your vegetables and, you know, a normal balanced diet. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Explain This. I hope you've learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. Just a quick shout out to all the listeners from Boardman, Oregon. Apparently I have more consistent listenership from your humble city than my own hometown of Auckland. So thank you for your ongoing support and listening to the podcast. I really appreciate all the regular listeners, newcomers to the show, and the lovely people sharing the podcast to friends, because that makes me want to keep making more episodes and teach you interesting things. So, do reach out and say hello if you're a long-time listener, or if it's your first episode that you're listening to and you're having a good time, especially if you have a topic suggestion. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter. 